Good morning, everyone. And particularly, good morning to the graduates. Thank you for doing me the great honour of being your valedictorian for 2012. I sat here last night and uh, <clears throat> saw your uh, macadamia tree, which is a gift to the campus. And I wondered whether I should have entitled this talk The Man from Macadamia or something like that. Resisted that, and, uh, but I do congratulate you on your theme. Um, with your permission, I'll take this hat off because I look enough like uh, King Henry VIII as it is. <laughs> and I've always wanted to try this as a frisbee in public. Not bad. <laughs> You know, Avondale has uh, developed many traditions over the 115 so years that it has been in existence. And uh, one of these has been the annual magazine that comes out, the Jacaranda. And you always know when graduation's coming up because the, uh, the Jacaranda start to bloom and a group of people work very, very hard to uh, produce the annual magazine full of photos. And you already have it in your hands, but something will happen over the next few years. It'll become more than a reminder of the events of your graduating year in 2012 you'll start to look at it differently in a few years and you'll be drawn to the pages wherein lie your pictures and the pictures of your fellow students and you'll start to ask questions like, I wonder what happened to so-and-so? Or, wow, look what happened to them, they really did well. Or, so-and-so has just disappeared. You know, many of you will make your mark in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. And I want to tell two stories today, both from the same era. And one of them commences with a young man in prison, which is perhaps not the most glorious way to commence a graduation story. He had begun yet another day in prison. I have actually been to prison, fortunately was released because I was only visiting people, he adds <laughs> in some haste. And modern prisons are pretty good compared to what it must have been then. But there's something about that razor wire and the security checks and all the iron doors and the frisking, as you go in, you diminish in your feeling of self-worth, even if you are a visitor. And you remain depressed, even though you know all you have to do is to stand up and signal to a guard. But this young man, he'd been chained by the neck, he'd been chained by the ankles, and he had woken up to about the 1,000th day 
of his imprisonment. His imprisonment for a crime he had never committed. Of course, many prisoners do say that. He also realized that every day could be his last. It's one thing I've noticed about visiting prisons. The inmates are finely tuned to what is happening around them. Because they are prisoners, because their very existence depends upon other people, they listen and they pick up the clues of the day very quickly. He was a trustee, but he knew that every day could be his last. He hadn't been convicted, he hadn't received a sentence, but he'd been in the prison long enough to see people suddenly called and executed with a moment's notice. So he was working, he was a trustee, cleaning out the slops, the latrines, and listening and waiting and wondering whether he had one more day, a thousand more days, 20 years or a lifetime. As he was working, he heard the clatter and the clang of horses arriving and the chariot. Every prisoner sat up and listened. He heard his name being called in haste. And all of a sudden, what he probably dreaded was apparently taking place. In come men, they ask for him, they take him. He is held down, one of them has a hammer, and they start to strike off the iron collar and the shackles around his feet. He may have thought, well, this is good news because last time they just cut off their hands and their heads to get the equipment back. He can tell there is a great sense of urgency What's going on? And no one was saying much, but he was told to have a shower and a shave, put on some clean clothes, hop on the chariot, and they scorched through the city. He realized he was not going to an execution chamber, but to the best part of the city until he pulled up in the royal palace. What's going on? All he could get was, Pharaoh wants to see you, Joseph. You know, the Bible tells us in Psalms 107 that his neck and ankles were fettered. And all of a sudden, in the space of an hour, he is standing before Pharaoh himself, the mightiest man on the face of the earth, have your Bibles pick up the story with me in Genesis chapter 41 I'll tell you what Pharaoh got to the point very quickly when you are the emperor when you are the Pharaoh you don't have to mess about with anybody with small talk verse 15 Pharaoh said to Joseph I had a dream and no one can interpret it but I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream you can interpret it that was the first clue that Joseph had that something was about to happen. He knew that one wrong answer, he wouldn't even make it back to the prison. He'd be executed. There's something about him. Joseph stood up, looked him in the eye. I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. 
Pharaoh then tells Joseph about the series of dreams about fat cattle and thin cattle and good corn and drought-stricken corn and the whole court is absolutely riveted and then we read here in verse 25 then Joseph said to Pharaoh the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do what confidence and so he starts to explain the dreams and all the astrologers and the magicians who completely miss the point their jaws are dropping as they realize that this young man is telling the truth and someone has told him the future he gets to the end and here's confidence and now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt he outlined the plan and Pharaoh was gobsmacked as was his court and they looked around at each other and the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials so Pharaoh asked them can we find anyone like this man one in whom is the spirit of God not a bad statement for a king who believed in a multiplicity of gods and all of a sudden he's talking about God with a capital G I don't know whether he stood up to say this but what came out of the mouth of Pharaoh absolutely had everyone spellbound this is what he said God since God has made all this known to you there is no one so discerning and wise as you you shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you so Pharaoh said to Joseph I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger he dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck he had him ride in a chariot as he second in command and men shouted before him make way and thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt how many times have we heard this story but I'm still in awe of this ancient tale and Pharaoh said to Joseph I'm Pharaoh but without your word no one will lift his hand or foot in all Egypt all in the space of one hour I visited Egypt and I went up to a place called the El Fayum and to my amazement was shown a canal still known after 3,000 years as the Canal Josepha after the mighty prime minister and so we come to the second story in the same era an unlikely pair two ladies one was called fair and the other one splendid and I can see them in my mind uh, pardon me ladies when we get to the kingdom if I get this wrong 
40-ish, plumpish, sweet, caring. But they were the chief midwives of Egypt. And Shipra means fair and Pua means splendid. Things had changed in Egypt. In fact, I turn to the first book, first chapter of Exodus. Now Joseph and all his brothers of that generation died. And then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. And like many kings and like many despots, he was fragile and paranoid. And he did what so many rulers have done, right down to Adolf Hitler and beyond. He looked for a scapegoat because he was not a very good ruler, so he picks on a minority people. And the children of Israel, who had grown and prospered, started to feel oppression. Their movements were restricted. Their property was taken from them, and finally they were placed into slavery, forced labor. And now genocide was about to start. And this king, in his madness, came up with a scheme to get rid of this population. We read here, he worked them ruthlessly. He made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar. And with all kinds of work in the field and all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. And one day he called for the two chief midwives. And they turned up trembling, no doubt, because they didn't know, as did Joseph years before. They didn't know what Pharaoh wanted. And to be called into the presence of the mightiest man on earth, unsure of what he's about to say, these two ladies trembled. And this is what he said. I've been thinking, now look, I know you helped the Hebrew women in childbirth and you observed the delivery and you're there. I want you to do something. There's too many boys around. And so um, when it's a baby boy, I want you to kill it. Plain and simple. It was a girl, let it go. But it was a boy, kill it. Well, these two dear women, faced with a decree from the mouth of Pharaoh himself, went out trembling from his presence, but they were not about to deviate from their duty. They knew their jobs, their careers, their lives were to bring people into this world not to extinguish their lives one minute after birth. And they instructed the other midwives, let the boys live. Well, after a while, Pharaoh noticed that the numbers of the boys were not diminishing. He called them again. He said, I want an explanation. Can you blame them for telling him a little porky? It's what I call the whiz-bang pop explanation. They said, they're so vigorous, they're not like Egyptian women. They give birth before we even get there. Well, their courage actually saved a nation. 
They took an awful risk. They went out on a limb. They knew that if I got this wrong, they knew that if they went out on a limb for God, they were taking an enormous risk because life was so cheap. You know, these two stories, in one way or another, graduates, reflect you, the characters in this story. Joseph, he was a pedigreed blue blood, great-grandson of Abraham himself, to whom God had promised a nation. Direct in line, the favored son of an aged father, he was also a spoilt, self-opinionated prat with a few lessons to learn. And he did. He had no idea what was to happen on that day when he looked for his brothers around Dothan. Discovered how much they hated him. You see, we're told that the colored robe it is described in the Bible in a feminine sense. It was probably a robe that his mother had worn. And when he told his brothers and his fathers about his dream of all the sheaves bowing to him and the stars bowing to him and the sun and the moon, no wonder they hated him. 17-year-old Pratt. But he did look forward to seeing his brothers but the welcome wasn't quite what he expected and he ended up in a cistern, an empty pit. And then to his horror, when he was hauled out, thinking he was to be given another chance, he realized that he was being sold to a bunch of Midianite slave traders. And off he went, stumbling along, Bound behind hands behind his back, rope around his neck behind a camel, and we're told that he gave way to absolute tears of grief, disbelief, and self-pity. He wept bitterly, and as he passed a range of hills, and he knew that his father's tent was on the other side, he was absolutely broken. His future was as bleak as the backside of the camel that he was following. <laughs> We're told, however, it's a fascinating read in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, that he grew up in the space of one hour. It seemed to be that in Joseph's life, exciting things happened in the space of an hour. We'll get to the other one presently. But he determined, I will never see my father and brothers again, but I will serve God, and I will never deviate from that. And in his despair, in his tears, he made a promise that he was never to break. God blessed him. He was half naked, he'd left his only coat behind, end up on a slave block being looked at and prodded and caught the eye of Potiphar taken into the home as a slave he was so faithful he was so diligent 
that he was finally placed in charge of the household and many times Joseph must have thought, thank you God, I made a promise to you and I know you have blessed me and my future is assured, thank you God, I know that you lead. He didn't know what was to happen. There are only twice in the Bible that someone is recorded as being handsome and with a good body, almost handsome. Esther is called beautiful and of good features. And Joseph is called handsome and with a body to die for, like mine. I didn't say that. (laughs) And it wasn't long before he caught the eye of Mrs. Potiphar. And she compromised him, she waited, she tempted him. I have no doubt that she was good looking. It's amazing what a bit of makeup can do anyway. But she was after him and when she made a proposition to him and she didn't beat about the bush, there was no doubt in her mind or in Joseph's mind what she wanted. I'm sure it flitted through his mind, I am in a real pickle. And the easiest thing would be just to go with the flow. And hopefully nobody will ever find out because boy, I'm in trouble. But I like his answer. And I think his answer in the book of Genesis is one of the greatest texts, almost an unrecognized text one of the greatest texts in history because it gives the secret to Joseph's success. This is what he said. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? It was as uncomplicated as that. He had no theological training since the age of 17. His iPhone with a complete concordance inside probably got smashed or pinched by his brothers. He had nothing. But he knew who his God was and he knew what his duty was. And he wasn't about to flinch from that. I'm looking forward to getting to the kingdom and having a look at the great DVDs of history. Because there's one I'm going to go for early in the piece and that is the, uh, the section there on Joseph. And I'm going to look along until I find a DVD with the title of When Potiphar Came Home at Lunchtime. (laughs) Because I can just see him scorching up the driveway in the chariot and doing a U-turn and leaping off and running and saying, darling, you never guess what's happened. You never guess who the prime minister of Egypt is. Mrs. Potiphar, no doubt took the news badly (laughs) these three people Joseph, Shipra and Pua fair and splendid they represent those of you whose lives Shipra and Pua they represent you whose lives may never be so spectacular there are some of you who will become leaders God chooses some people to do that There are others of you who will be very, very faithful in what you do. These are the people who simply serve their community in the best way they can. You know, they were rewarded. And the Bible 
can't even give us the name of the Pharaoh, but it records the name of Shipra and Pua. They're rewarded. They eventually married and had their own children. And so we see that Joseph, Shipra, and Pua all became mummies. Uh, Don't encourage me, whatever you do. But you know, I've been around Kurumbong for, for a long time. <clears throat> My memories go back to longer than I care to say, certainly about 1952. And I went to school here and I taught here. And I know a lot of people. And I've known some people that I could have been excused for thinking were very ordinary. Maisie Fook, now passed to her rest. Helen Eager, I knew Helen well. I taught her daughters and her son. <clears throat> Just an ordinary Kurumbong housewife. Well, last Sabbath, I had lunch with Helen Eager in Nepal, in Pokhara. And I was asking her, about herself because she describes herself as just a nobody farm girl from a nowhere farm in a tiny little town somewhere near Gisborne in New Zealand no degrees, no training, no nothing but she had a heart and these two ladies realized that there were children in Korea who didn't have warm clothes in winter, so they started to collect clothes. And then they started to collect money because they realized the money could go further. And they set up an organization for one of a better title. They called it Asian Aid. Asian Aid now supports over 150 schools on the subcontinent. And wherever you go through India and Nepal, it's not Helen Eager, it's Mummy Eager. One of our friends that we met over there, who's now an officer with Asian Aid, was a little orphan boy. No parents, finally dumped on a train, traveled for days, and ended up in a room with a bunch of people whose language he couldn't understood. Terrified beyond belief thinking that he would die. And this woman comes forward and puts her arms around him. That was mummy. It is amazing to see men in their 40s and 50s talk about mummy eager. Austin, you were a boy in Kurumbong who spoke to you last night. Where are you, Murray? He was just a knockabout kid from Kurumbong. And Murray, I taught you in high school, and the Lord rebuked me for never seeing what he had in store for you. And I often have said, it's amazing what the Holy Spirit can do when it gets into the life of somebody. You know, Murray and I are very close. And uh, we think the same way which is not surprising because I pinch half of his books and he flogs the rest of mine. 
and we have many conversations about sermons. In fact, Murray has been known to say to me when I'm coming up north, oh, don't preach that sermon, that one or that one, because I've used it. Thank you, Murray. But the other day, or the other week, we both received letters asking for our sermon titles and a synopsis. And they had to be due in by the beginning of November. So I did mine, and I'm a good boy. And then feeling very self-righteous about the 2nd or 4th of November, I rang Murray up to see whether he'd put his in. He's not a slack wretch, but I hadn't gone in yet. And he said, oh, I've got it, I've thought of it, I've got it here in a piece of paper. And he said, what's your topic? What's your title? And I said, I've got a statement from Mark Twain that says, go out on a limb because that's where you'll find the best fruit. There's a long silence on the phone. A very long silence. And then he says, you're kidding. Not only had he chosen the same topic, but our synopsis were almost the same. And of course, I was very sympathetic and laughed my head off, which is... <laughs> which is why Murray chose another topic last night and praise the Lord, praise the Lord you did Murray I hope you're over there because I'm sort of looking in that direction if, if you're not I apologise to a whole bank of people but I have seen God use this knockabout kid from Kurumbong you have preached to huge crowds all over the world because you have a heart for God To be used by God, however, you have to face a refiner's fire. Let's not be morbid. We're all going to have to face a fire of some description, and it's better to have the refiner's fire. If you are going to make a mark in life, God will test you in some way. Joseph went out on that limb. Sure, Pua and Shipro, they went out on that limb. But why does God want to use a bunch of graduates from Avondale College? Why doesn't he use angels? Any angel, the least in heaven, could stand here and could present any better than you. He could out-preach me and out-preach Murray Hunter. But why does he use us? For the simple reason he has predicated his entire reputation on human beings who sinned, who fell short, and by grace alone serve God. Because when that happens, it is a huge rebuke to Satan himself. Some of you have great plans, and that is good. It is good to have plans. You've already thrilled through the vision splendid. Others of you may think that you're only a very small player in all of this. And that, my friend, is exactly what Lucifer would want you to think, that you're a nobody from a nobody town. Many people just sit and think about things and watch television and think that the world will just go on forever. It takes the bold and the courageous to go out on a limb. And Murray, last night you were quite right when you said that in that chapter 15 of the book of John, Christ constantly used the word abide. 
If you use a modern version, it means remain. Remain faithful. There's no complicated theology. It didn't worry Jesus. Jesus didn't test his disciples as to their understanding of sanctification versus justification. All he says in John 15 was abide with me, stick with me, remain with me. He says, I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. You know, dear graduates, on the night of your conception, God had already chosen what you are to become. I can go back a lot further than that. More generations than you can think about, God saw you. And he knows that there is absolutely no limit to what you can achieve for him. And that goes to every person within earshot this morning. To the graduates of 2012, abide in him and be faithful. God bless you all.